Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer Senior Reporter, and your host for this week. As always, thanks for joining us. Now, if you're hearing my voice and thinking, who the heck is this, I can help. Our editor, Olivia Covington, has a column in our most recent issue to give everyone an update on recent changes in our newsroom. You can read that at theindianalawyer.com. For our extended interview this week, Olivia spoke with three leaders from child advocates about their work with Notre Dame's Lab for Economic Opportunity to conduct a study on the benefits of counsel for foster children. But before we get to that, let's start with this week's headlines. Today is Wednesday, April 5th, 2023, and these are your headlines. We'll start with an update from managing editor Daniel Carson about a new judge confirmation in the Southern District Court. An Indiana magistrate judge has been confirmed by the U.S. Senate for a new district judge position with the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana. The U.S. Senate confirmed Matthew Brookman by voice vote on March 29th to fill an upcoming vacancy on the Southern District Court. Brookman, a magistrate judge since 2016, will fill the district court seat held by Judge Richard Young. Carl Tobias, a University of Richmond School of Law professor, attributes Brookman's relatively smooth path to confirmation to the efforts of Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, and Indiana's two Republican senators, Todd Young and Mike Braun. Tobias said Braun and Young have been smart about working with Durbin to make sure the Southern District vacancy got filled. The law professor also says other judicial vacancies have been left unfilled due to a lack of cooperation between the White House and red state senators. But Brickman's confirmation continues a pattern of bipartisan cooperation in getting Indiana judges confirmed on the federal level. Brickman's confirmation will take pressure off of the other Southern District judges, Tobias says. Also, Tobias says he will be keeping his eye on other judicial vacancies to see how quickly the Senate fills them. That includes one in the Indiana Northern District Court, where senior judge Teresa Springman's chair has been open since she took senior status in January 2021, and Northern District Chief Judge John DiGiulio's position, which will become empty when he takes senior status in July. Back to you, Tyler. Thanks, Daniel. Any court reporters listening to this might enjoy our next bit of news. After lots of pushback, the Indiana Supreme Court will allow shorthand and stenography as long as there's also an audio recording. If you remember back to January, court reporters said they were blindsided by a proposed rule amendment that would have required all courts to record audio hearings and would have prohibited recording through shorthand or stenography. The finalized amendment to Trial Rule 74 which will still allow shorthand and stenography, will take effect January 1st, 2024. The amendment also strikes some sections from the rule that allow court reporters to serve as clerks in some circumstances and language governing the pay and duties of court reporters. Now for news out of the Seventh Circuit, which held oral arguments last week at the IU McKinney School of Law. Dozens of students and legal professionals got a chance to observe from the gallery, which could become a more regular occurrence. Judges said they want to restart the practice of hearing arguments at law schools around the Seventh Circuit. I was there to cover a case involving a woman from Shelbyville who sued the United States Postal Service. The woman, Shelley Ellison, uses a wheelchair and alleges the post office in Shelbyville is in violation of the Rehabilitation Act because it isn't accessible. 
but the Indiana Southern District Court ruled Ellison still has meaningful access to services. The appeal focuses on what counts as meaningful access. Ellison can't use the main entrance at the post office, so she has to use a loading dock ramp. USPS says Ellison still has meaningful access to services through a combination of delivery, online services, and three other post offices within 10 miles of Shelbyville. Ellison's attorney from the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana argued that the time it takes for her to travel to other post offices, plus figuring out their hours and what services they offer, amounts to more than a de minimis burden. The case was one of six the panel heard at the Indianapolis Law School. David Hamilton, Doris Pryor, and Michael Scudder made up the Seventh Circuit's three-judge panel. They stuck around for a conversation at the law school later that evening. It was a lighthearted event with professor and former Indiana Supreme Court Justice Frank Sullivan as the moderator. As a new reporter in the legal world, I didn't quite get all the jokes, but I laughed anyway. Judges discussed how they worked together, offered tips for attorneys, and talked about former Seventh Circuit judges. Judge Scudder had the most interesting comment of the evening when he talked about why the Seventh Circuit hears arguments in all counsel cases. He used the example of someone who is challenging their sentence and said, quote, there's a human being that is serving the time. He said giving that person their day in court, quote, has a value above and beyond whether our minds are likely to be changed in the appeal, end quote. Now we'll go over to reporter Alexa Shrake to tell us about a new problem-solving court in Allen County. Allen County has created a new Family Domestic Violence Problem-Solving Court. The goal is to provide support, recovery, and services to survivors and perpetrators of domestic violence and their families. This is the eighth problem-solving court in Allen County. It has received a provisional certification from the Indiana Supreme Court. Judge Lori Morgan oversees the court, which serves parents, guardians, custodians, and children that have been entered into the Child in Need of Services system. Last year, there were 472 CHINS cases filed in Allen Superior Court. Each of those cases involved allegation of abuse or neglect. Morgan said in a news release that they hope to bring families together in healthy ways through the problem-solving court. The program can last between eight months to two years. The participants will benefit from a variety of therapeutic support resources to handle domestic violence, substance abuse, and mental health issues. Notably, while parties are participating in the program, a chin's case will not proceed to termination of parental rights. Back to you, Tyler. Thanks, Alexa. Now for a somewhat similar story. The parents of a child who was removed by the Department of Child Services for three months as an infant reached a $750,000 settlement with the agency last month. The parents sued in the Indiana Southern District Court after DCS removed their six-month-old, who was in the hospital with a fractured arm. Although a doctor noted the injury was unusual for a child that age, the complaint said multiple evaluations found no signs of abuse or other trauma. Still, DCS removed the child and placed him with his grandparents. A DCS caseworker was also accused of repeatedly telling the parents they didn't need a lawyer, which is how they ended up in a detention hearing with no counsel. Although it settled, the agency denied violating the family's constitutional rights. Now we'll go back to Daniel for an update on legislation at the State House. Proposed legislation in the Indiana legislature has put a spotlight on two schools of thought when it comes to investing public pension funds. One bill out of a handful of similar pieces of legislation is Senate Bill 292, introduced by Senator Travis Holdman, a Republican from Markle, who describes the legislation as codifying public pension investment principles 
that focus on bringing the highest rate of return. Forbes defines ESG strategy as investing in companies that score highly on environmental and social responsibility scales as determined by third parties. Holdman says he doesn't believe ESG, the hot-button acronym for environmental, social, and governance factors, should be used to govern the investment of public funds. But Democratic politicians are advocating in favor of ESG investment strategies. In Indiana, Holdman's Senate Bill 292 passed the Senate in February and has been referred to the House Financial Institutions Committee. On the House side, House Bill 1008, the ESG investing bill getting the most attention in Indiana, passed the House among mostly party lines in late February with Democrats united in opposition. HB 1008, authored by Representative Ethan Manning, a Republican from Logansport, has been referred to the Senate Committee on Pensions and Labor. The concepts of Senate Bill 292 and House Bill 1008 are essentially the same, requiring fiduciaries of public pension funds to act solely in the financial interest of the participants and beneficiaries of the public pension system. In other words, ESG investing would not be allowed for the Indiana Public Retirement System or Indiana State Police Pension Trust. Charles Baldwin, a shareholder in Ogletree Deacon's Indianapolis office and a leader of the firm's environmental, social, and governance practice group, says the concept of environmental, social, and governance investment is relatively new. Politics can get in the middle of ESG investing decisions, Baldwin added with some investment funds practicing ESG principles and others steering away from them and focusing solely on getting the highest returns possible. Indiana's potential move to restrict ESG investing of its roughly $45 billion in pension funds comes as President Joe Biden is taking a decidedly different tack. In the first veto of his presidency, Biden on March 20th sought to kill a Republican measure that bars the government from considering environmental impacts or potential lawsuits when making investment decisions for Americans' retirement plans, according to the Associated Press. Dimitri Kaiser, a communications specialist for the Indiana Public Retirement System, says the House bill could increase the administrative costs of administering public pension funds. Holdman says he expects to see a public pension investment bill passed in Indiana with strong legislative support. Back to you, Tyler. Thanks, Daniel. To wrap up today's headlines, I'll tell you about a story I'm working on for our April 12th issue. William Lavalle Rivera and Shahad Jaziri are wrapping up a year-long internship with the Indiana Southern District Court. The Model Diversity Internship Pilot Program is meant to foster diversity in the judiciary. The program is funded by the Administrative Office of the United States, which paid for one of the interns. But it turned out to be a difficult task trying to choose between William and Shahad as the finalists. So Chief Deputy Clerk Allison Chestovich said the court decided to fund a second intern on its own. For William, the internship has been a chance to see the inside of the judicial system and confirm that, yes, judges are human too. To learn more about this, read my story in the April 12th issue of The Indiana Lawyer. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, the IndianaLawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft. 
Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined via Zoom by Cindy Booth. Happy to be here. Rachel Walensky. Hello. And Phyllis Armstrong. Hi. All of Child Advocates, who are going to tell us about their work with Notre Dame's Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities, also known as the LEO Project. Through their project, the Child Advocates team is studying the impact of providing counsel to kids in the foster care system. Cindy is Executive Director of Child Advocates, Rachel is an attorney with the Direct Representation Program, and Phyllis is Vice President of Program Operations. So let's dive into the first question. Tell me about Notre Dame's LEO Project. Well, we're really excited about this opportunity. I'll start and they'll fill in because they're the real workers in this project. (laughs) LEO, the Lab for Economic Opportunity, has been studying the effects of human services interventions on poverty and people experiencing poverty. And they have had their eye on what happens with youth in foster care for quite a while. So we were connected with them when they heard about our direct representation program, which Rachel runs, and and what effect our work with foster youth has on their futures. And so we were really delighted to have this opportunity to work with them. It's an intensive research project that Rachel and Phyllis can tell you more about, and it's just the perfect time with everything that's going on in Indiana right now about Council for Children for us to have this project. Phyllis, anything to fill in? there? I mean, there's so much. We will be working with certain judges, and the judges are going to be referring individuals to child advocates for legal representation, really just evaluating that, evaluating the benefit of having an attorney for children in the foster care system, mainly older children, versus those kids who don't get attorneys, which right now in Indiana is most kids do not get attorneys, versus other states where most kids do have attorneys. I think we're really excited to have the fact that we have the experience um, and depth of the experts in research from Leo for free. Like it's just an amazing opportunity to do an impact uh, study. We haven't been a part of one like this before. I'm not sure that there has been one exactly like this across the country even. Um, So we are just excited to be able to harness their expertise and get to work studying what we've been doing for a while. So maybe let's kind of get into the background of, you know, how exactly you got involved in this. And then, you know, once you get started, what exactly this study will entail. So I'll I'll start answering then, Rachel and Phyllis, I'd like to fill in. So we were the best interest advocate in Marion County for many years. And as best interest advocate, we looked at many aspects of a child's life. And early on, we were looking at times when we thought an attorney was needed for this child to further whatever issue they had on. At the very beginning, it was things like if they had property left to them, we need to put something in trust. Or if they were immigrants and we needed to do a special immigrant juvenile status, Less so, it was about us having an attorney representing them in their child in need of services case, which we call a Chin's case. But about three years ago, we decided that we would see how it would work to have a pilot project, which we quickly put into a program and got it funded to have attorneys for young people 
in the child welfare system. And we asked Rachel to come over to us from the public defender side because she is a passionate, zealous advocate for clients' rights. And we felt that was something, a really important aspect of having attorneys for children in Chin's cases. And so she came to our office and that was about two or three years ago, right? Yep, about two and a half. Yeah. And so she's been diligently working with a couple of other attorneys on those cases right now. I mean, before we even had the Leo Project. So I don't know, Rachel, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, and I just want to, you know, say from my perspective, I I worked with juveniles who are in the delinquency system for over 12 years. And I was very passionate about that work. And when you look at a kid in the delinquency system or anyone in the criminal justice system, they have a lawyer, right? Because we know as lawyers, we all went to law school and like lawyering 101 is if somebody's going to deprive you of your liberty, due process requires that the state give you a lawyer, right? That's just like how we know whether you pay for a lawyer or whether you get one for free. That's the difference. It's a deprivation of liberty. And so you see kids in the delinquency system being placed in these locked facilities. And these are private locked facilities around our state. And they are just like prison. Um, I have had many clients who would prefer to go to DOC rather than go to some of these locked residential facilities for whatever reason. And of course, in the delinquency system, as a as an attorney, my clients, they received due process, right? They had a lawyer. They had me from the beginning of the case. Prior to that initial hearing, they met with me. I raised arguments. We, I was at a sentencing hearing. They decided to plea or go to trial. All of that complied with due process. And then I, I'm sitting over there in the public defender agency, and I'm seeing all of these child welfare kids in the same residential, locked, private facilities that my delinquency kids are. They have the same rooms, the same staff, the same requirements, the same, all of all of that in this secure, you know, deprivation of liberty kind of placement. And they did not get a lawyer. And it just felt so wrong. So when Cindy opened up this opportunity to come and represent child welfare kids, I, I thought it was just an incredible program that I wanted to be a part of. I would also note, you know, we talk a lot about residential facilities, but children in child welfare cases are also put on what would be probation requirements. We don't say that they're probation requirements, but when you're ordered into therapy and you don't want to go, that's a probation requirement. When you are ordered into certain other services, when you're ordered that you can't watch certain things on TV, that you can't dye your hair a certain color because your bio mom who you haven't lived with for three years doesn't agree. You know, all of these things feel like probation requirements. And frankly, coming from the delinquency system, they are the exact same requirements that probation would would put on my clients. And again, you know, no attorney, it just didn't feel, it felt like a deprivation of liberty without due process. And, you know, I understand in our system, we do provide guardian language with CASAs, but they are a separate party from the child. And they are also not normally attorneys. So that was why I think Cindy and and Phyllis and others also felt the need. And that was certainly the reason I came over. So we have been representing, to answer your question, (laughs) uh, we have been representing clients for the last uh, two and a half years in their child welfare cases and really been seeing how beneficial attorneys can be for anywhere from, you know, asking or or, filing motions for a child to 
go to some kind of extracurricular activity that otherwise they would not be able to do, whether that's football camp. I recently horseback riding lessons. And these things are really coping mechanisms as well for kids. Uh, They are extremely important for their brain development and to deal with the trauma that many of them have been exposed to. But then also filing and, and litigating termination of parental rights hearings as well. So we do we do it all and so far have seen very positive uh, effects for our clients. And then I'll just add real quick, and I know Phyllis, if you want to hop in here too, when we created the direct representation program, we knew we could not represent all children. We had a limited capacity. And so we utilized the Supreme Court Advisory Commission for Guardian Litem Casa their standards for when an attorney would be a good idea for a child or a youth in foster care. I don't know, Phyllis, I see you nodding your head. So yes, please go ahead. No, that's what I was going to absolutely add. We follow the best practices that were put out by that commission. And initially our work really was focused on children um, who are in what we call chin six. So that's a children who've been alleged to be a danger to themselves or others, children who've been human trafficked and their allegations of human trafficking in the case kids who have immigration issues. Um, those were like the three prime areas that we you know, started. Like They very obviously needed legal advice and legal assistance. And so those cases were the ones that we um, began the work in. And of course, it expanded from there. But again, it was very much consistent with those best practices that were put out by the Supreme Court Advisory Commission on GAL, GAL CASA. So um, other issues that we've covered for kids have been um, that might be involved in personal injury actions, um, will have trust or asset issues somewhere along the the line, and they and they need legal advice and legal assistance. And so our attorneys have done that, and it's just really expanded as we the more we've done, the more need that we see. And Olivia, linking that back to Leo, mm-hmm. so when they came to us and said we'd like to, you know, have a foundation piece of research for for this movement for attorneys for uh, kids and uh, chins cases. They looked at the same things that we did. It felt like we were going through the same analysis. And so I, I predict that the research project that Rachel and Phyllis will be doing will have some of the same parameters that we put on our program. You know, older youth, I'm not sure what that age will be, and those kinds of things that we looked at. So we're really excited about this opportunity. It, it was just so fortuitous that it came at this time. In the study itself, if I remember from what I was told, it starts in this fall. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So can you kind of walk me through the logistics and maybe you don't have them all worked out, but how you think this is this is going to work when you get started? I would just start with, I guess, it's very structured, thankfully, and we are um, having ongoing weekly work with folks through Leo starting now. Some are focusing on um, marketing brand things that um, part of our team is doing that. Rachel and I will be involved in the workshops with the research team. We'll be assigned, we have been assigned, I believe, a research team coordinator, for lack of a better word, and we will have a team that we're working with throughout the summer. Um, and we'll have a conclusive, there are two workshops, two two-day workshops with them. And then in between their weekly calls for us to be working with that design research design team to really fine tune what the focus is going to be um, and the parameters, what the outcome measures are going to be, all the things. Rachel, chime in if I've missed something. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be really interesting. One of the first things we came up against is, you know, so the judges will refer these cases and and we'll, some of them will be experimental, meaning they get a lawyer and some will be control, meaning they don't. And so, of course, from somebody who works with kids, we, you know, work with kids and we know that some kids need lawyers. So what happens if that kid goes to the control and they need a lawyer? 
So we were able to easily, uh, with the help of the team, the data team kind of problem solve that, where if a judge thinks a kid absolutely needs a lawyer and doesn't want to risk them being in the control group, that judge can assign a, a kid a lawyer separately and they're not part of the study at all. So I know we're going to just come up more and more, you know, because we absolutely are focusing on the best interests of the children. Our best interest is what kids want, but it's still what we're doing, which, you know, is best for kids. And so with that, we want to make sure that we're not in any way hurting our clients or putting them in a, in a worse situation and making sure that the attorneys and the study overall benefit Indiana uh, with the information that we'll receive. And honestly, it's just going to benefit nas the national community very much has um, looked at every every year, there is new legislation in multiple states around the country, either adding attorneys for kids in the child welfare system or changing the role of the attorney from a best interest guardian ad litem type attorney to a direct expressed interest attorney, basically the attorney working for exactly what the child wants and, and how to do that and how to do substituted judgment and diminished capacity. And so this study will be able to, uh, you know, give information nationally to all kinds of different groups and stakeholders about the the benefits or, you know, maybe not, but the benefits ideally of, uh, of ch uh, children having their own lawyers in the child welfare system. You know, you to pick up on your point about the legislative efforts. Of course, we talked a lot about that in recent years in Indiana. Was there any legislation in the 2023 session going on right now that addressed these issues? There were three bills that were filed. Representative Clear filed a bill that would have required, uh, it was amended a couple different times, would have required some children to have lawyers. And then Senator John Ford filed two bills. One was for all children to have lawyers. And then another one was for a pilot to be done for children to have lawyers. So I know one that clears bill got a hearing. Senator Ford's bills did not. Obviously, we know legislative session is tough and there's there's so many moving parts. So we'll see in the future nothing passed that would require all children to have lawyers. But we know that there were many, many legislators who are extremely concerned about the numbers that we have, the permanency data that we have in Indiana. We just are not providing a, uh, I don't like a successful foster care mm. system. We're just not. And then county by county, you know, there are, I have to say at work, my program's in about 15 to 20 different counties and every county is so different. And I know all the lawyers who are listening to this are shaking their head. Yes, because anyone who practices in more than one county knows that every county is totally different. And, you know, maybe that works in some places, but when you're looking at a child welfare system, it's very confusing and very concerning that so many different counties think that they're doing, you know, of course, we all want to know that we're doing the best that we can, but how can that be possible if we're all doing it so differently? Sure. So some kind of study to give more information, I think, is definitely needed. And Olivia, I think it's important to note, this is the first study of its kind that is comparing attorneys to no attorneys in a randomized controlled trial. That, that has not happened before. There have been some qualitative studies and another study out of Palm Beach, Florida, but this is the first time they are that we will be looking at what are the results if you have an attorney compared to not having an attorney. And I know it's still very early in the process, but do you have any predictions or any inkling of what you think you might see come out of this? 
So we have kept our own data. Of course, our program at Child Advocates is small. So we have found um, state savings. And we've also found that most of our cases have been out of Marion County. And so compared to Marion County numbers, which Marion County puts out the numbers of uh, days out of home for their DCS youth. And so compared to those days, uh, our days are shorter. So children are achieve permanency faster if they've had a lawyer through child advocates. But we can't, you know, it's not a randomized controlled study. It is just comparing our data for our youth that we represent compared to the DCS data that they put out for the community. So it's nothing that we can, you know, totally hang our hats on, but certainly, and then the financial savings, of course, you know, these residential facilities cost around $500 a day. Wow. A day. So average out and it's taxpayers, it's all of us, we are paying for those. So at multiple different times, I have argued for youth to not go to a residential facility, whether I find a relative caregiver that uh, nobody else was looking into, or whether just, you know, a successful argument for them to stay with their current caregiver. And anytime I'm the only one arguing for that, and I'm really sure if I was not arguing for that, they would be in a residential facility. You know, that's easily $150,000 right there. So I would like to ask for DCS to pay me a check for that $150,000, but I don't think they're going to do it. So I take my salary from child advocates and we know that we've done a good job for a child in ensuring that they're in the least restrictive environment that the statute requires. So like I said, I, I know it's still early days, but is there anything else we we haven't covered that you you know want to share about what's coming out of this process? Well, I think we'll start you know, we'll start with this creation of this research project that will look, I think, somewhat like what Rachel's already doing, probably 12 or 14 and up, something like that. And as we said, right now, we're working on having judges around the state wanting to be a part of it. And we've been really pleased by the number of judges who've said we re- we want to be a part of this project. They think it's prestigious as we think it's prestigious to do that. So we're really excited about that piece of it. I don't know what these guys are anticipating because they're going to do all the work on the research project. <laughs> I think we're just excited about just spreading awareness about it through this work um, and helping people understand what it is, see the the benefits, understand the distinctions, why it isn't the same as a GAL CASA um, role that often they run side by side and are working similarly, uh, but it is different. And there are benefits to it, to the children, to the, the case in general, never mind broadly, as Rachel has, had, has said, to our state coffers. So you know, we're just excited at having the opportunity and spreading um, more information about about it and about the outcomes that we have at the end of this study. Yeah. And I think for Indiana in particular, as you mentioned, Olivia, with the legislation and the fact that we are one of only seven states that does not require attorneys for at least some children in the child welfare system. Our statute just says May. And, um, you know, Washington State did a study with a similar statute prior to recently implementing legislation that did does require most kids settlers. And their study with the same May language found that most judges were not appointing. And that's just anecdotally like what we're finding across the state as well. Most judges are, are not appointing attorneys. There's, you know, we all struggle to find public defenders. Some of these counties don't have them right now. So that's always a struggle and it costs money to pay an attorney. And and most judges are just not. So, uh, you know, we receive referrals where 
you know, youth come to us and say, I want a lawyer. And then I explain what a lawyer is. And they said, yes, that's what I want. And then we explain it again and again, because we want to make sure they really understand. And this is what, you know, um, kids are requesting and wanting, and they want, they need that person who has that confidentiality, that confidential relationship with them so that we can help them problem solve without reporting to the judge that they're smoking marijuana to deal with their problems. Right. right. You know, that kind of, uh, zealous representation that they want somebody in a suit sitting next to them in court and advocating for exactly what they want in a way just like they said it and that uh overall has you know due process and and um, it meets the requirements of due process but it also has long-lasting effects that their voice is important we want to make sure kids are using you know the life skill of making decisions in their life instead of being totally not even having a seat at the table. So the LEO project allows us to have cases assigned, uh, children assigned. So we are happy to really be working closely with judges and other stakeholders to work as a team, but then also clearly as our role to represent kids and more kids in some of these counties that we're working with judges in. Um, So I think that's just really excited to get the word out there, but also to like affect change for kids in their child welfare cases. Sure. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again to Cindy, Rachel, and Phyllis for joining me today. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit the or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.